Down to Earth with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world for all. This is News Talk. This is Down to Earth with me, Dr. Cara Augustenborg, News Talk's dedicated program about our natural environment and how we address the limits of our planet's resources. On the show today, retired Vice Admiral Mark Mellet on our energy supply and the impact of war in Ukraine. We'll be exploring what role gas may have in our low-carbon transition. And Wind Energy Ireland's Person of the Year, Dr. David Conley, tells us about his green life. Of course, we'd also love to hear from you. You can email us at downtoearth at newstalk.com. And now it's time to head down to earth, beginning with our weekly news roundup. Yes, it's our regular feature, The Weekly Planet, with Chief Executive of the Wildlife Trust in the UK, Craig Bennett. Every week, Craig helps me talk about a few of the latest environmental stories from around the world. Welcome back, Craig. Hi, Carla. Hi. Our first story this week is a topic near and dear to our hearts, both in the UK and Ireland, because it's about peat bogs. And they cover about a sixth of the island of Ireland and about a tenth of the UK. But a study that you found in Nature Climate Change recently looked at specifically frozen peatlands across northern Europe. So what did they find? Yeah, well, it's really concerning, Carla. This is about the northern peatlands, as you say, across Finland, Sweden, uh, and also parts of northern Russia. And uh, previously, it's been thought that they would remain stable until the 2070s uh, under climate change scenarios. But a new analysis sadly suggests they may begin thawing as early as the 2040s. And of course, peatlands are a vast store of carbon. Actually, uh, the most recent calculations suggest there's more carbon in peatlands than in trees in all those forests, which have had so much attention over the years. And of course, just last week, Kawa, we were talking about the dangers of the Amazon passing a tipping point and actually starting to become a source of carbon to the atmosphere rather than a sink. And sadly, this latest study suggests the same might happen about peatlands um, and that this tipping point could happen much sooner and could release billions of tonnes of carbon that would further accelerate climate change. And what they looked at for the University of Leeds study, they've pinpointed in new detail where local climates will become unsuitable for peatland locked away. And in these parts of Finland, Norway, Sweden, and a small part of Northwest Russia, they estimate it will become too warm for permafrost peatland by the 2040s. It might take a bit longer in Western Siberia, but it all just goes to emphasize, you know, if, if uh, this would leave the world, if this all happened, this would leave the world with around 40 billion tons of carbon twice the amount contained in all of Europe's forests at risk of being released into the atmosphere. So it just goes to show we've got to move faster. Yeah, I was reading a quote from one of the scientists involved in the study, and and uh, he was saying that this is really turning these sinks, these carbon sinks, which are in the form of peatlands, into sources of carbon, and he called it depressingly fascinating. Would you agree with those words? Yeah, it's a good way of putting it, isn't it? And I think you and I kind of increasingly used to depressingly fascinating bits of news and information and studies, aren't we? Peatlands do need to receive a lot more attention than they've received in the past. I mean, I think probably for most people, people are sort of kind of really used to, to forests being the kind of poster child, if you like, of the, the interaction between climate and nature. But actually, peatlands are the most important terrestrial store of carbon on the planet. Um, as I was saying, the most recent research says, says that. So it really is a case that uh, it's a big concern. And there's so many other things really uh, associated with this as well. Of course, peatlands also hold water and are very important for holding water land back in the landscape. Um, so there's big implications if we start to see our peatlands uh, both thawing out in the northern latitudes and 
then releasing carbon. But also the more peatlands we lose, uh, the more of a problem that is for climate and water regulation generally. So we've got to get much better at this. And of course, it raises the issue also about how peatlands are being degraded from other sources. I mean, you know, I personally have been campaigning for about 20 years to try and stop garden centres and retailers selling peat for use in gardens. It just strikes me as absolutely mad. You know, it's the equivalent of chopping down tropical rainforest and, and using it for, for single-use chopsticks or something. It's crazy. And uh, in the UK, after a lot of campaigning, they are now consulting the UK government and consulting and banning the sale of peat in the UK. But they're still going to say they're going to take two, three years over it. And more generally, still vast quantities of peat are sold right across Western Europe. And we've got to address this. It's a real problem. The next story, Craig, that you've brought us reminded me of the interview we did last week with communications expert Terry Prone for her Green Life interview. And and she was telling us that one of the proudest moments that she had as a policy advisor to the Irish government was actually putting an end to the sale of leaded petrol here, which was banned in both the UK and Ireland in the year 2000. But the story that you brought us from the New Scientist uh, this week looked at the impact on people's IQ levels in the United States based on their exposure to leaded petrol. So leaded petrol was banned there in 1996. I would have been one of those people affected by those fumes. How much damage has actually been done to my intelligence, Craig? This is one of those stories, Carla, where, uh, you know, it's it's fascinating that you can have action taken sometimes decades ago, and, and sometimes it does take decades for the scientists to catch up and understand what impact it had, uh, which I think is a cautionary tale for us. And, you know, to be honest, it was always known that uh, lead in petrol was harming uh, the uh, growing sort of intelligence of young children, but the details weren't sort of fully understood. And this was a very significant study undertaken by Duke University, looked at uh, 11,600 children aged one to five from blood samples drawn between 1976 and 2016, right across the United States. And they do estimate that that lead in petrol has had a uh, you know, notable effect, you know, they're talking about an average drop in IQ of 2.6 points uh, across the sort of uh, US population at that time. And actually for people born in the mid to late 1960s, who would have suffered for the highest amount of lead and petrol in the subsequent decades of the 1970s and 80s and 90s before it was banned, may have lost an average of 5.9 points on their oh. IQ. So thank goodness it was then banned uh, as you say, at the late 1990s here in Europe and in 2000, the United States. And what I would say, Carl, you said about what impact has it had on your IQ. Um, but I let's put it this way. I'm, I'm a little bit older than you, I think. That's how Tiny I'd bit. like to put it. <laughs> Others might put it differently. Um, so if uh, a little bit older, I mean, I was born in the early 1970s. So that means uh, it would have affected me more than it's affected you, arguably. So actually, I come off a little bit worse out of the story, I reckon. <laughs> well, that's a relief for me anyway. Uh, I, I think it's interesting, though, that the, that the IQ, if you were born in the, in the 1970s, or I guess if you grew up in the 1970s or 1980s, this would have been a real problem for all of us, both in the UK and Ireland and also in the United States, uh, breathing in these fumes. And it's probably not just IQ, is it? It's probably other health effects, too. Yeah, that's right. I mean, something I've certainly heard talked about many times before, and this is pretty well established in the science, is that lead in petrol was also associated with increasingly violent societies. And this sounds extraordinary, I know. But actually, if you look at it uh, right around the world, in many different societies around the world, um, actually, there's been a lowering of violence in a society and quite clearly measured well, almost exactly 20 years after 
um, uh, petrol was banned. So it's quite extraordinary. You see it in many, many different countries. So um, I think really the big lesson from all of this is, is yet again, the thing that we've said many times before is, sadly, it takes a long time perhaps for the science to catch up on uh, the impact of these kind of pollutants. So hang and, on. So and- you, are you actually saying that that they've been able to statistically link the 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 incidence of lead in petrol with actually a society being more violent has that been proven that is crazy isn't it that's been shown in many parts of the world it's quite an extraordinary thing and it might not be you know it's not like a necessarily huge thing but it's certainly statistically uh, significant and uh, certainly i've seen studies in the past that have said that so i think the point is here is like on all of these issues, the, the really scary thing is that we don't yet understand the impact that many pollutants are having on our health and our wider environment. And us just perhaps being a bit more cautious in advance uh, before we fully understand it all, uh, what probably makes a good sense. Finally, Craig, I think we've seen lawsuits against Shell and other oil companies in the past for their role in climate change. But Shell is actually back in the news this week, and this time it's personal because their 13 executive and non-executive directors are being sued by Client Earth for their failure to tackle climate change. Give us the details. Yeah, this is significant because this is an action by as you say, Client Earth, which has had a quite a lot of a success in the past in bringing legal cases against companies, in particular on climate issues as well. And on this occasion, Client Earth have bought a minimum number of shares in Shell and are now bringing a case as shareholders um, on the directors and saying that they bear personal responsibility for not preparing to cut emissions fast enough. Uh, this is really significant. They've been doing this under the duties that directors have under UK company law, and they're looking to commence legal proceedings against the company's 13 executive and non-executive directors for what it said was the, what Client Earth said is the board's failure to adopt a strategy that truly aligns with the 2015 Paris Agreement. And I thought this was really interesting, one, because um, almost whether it's successful or not, I think it will have big implications for the way companies kind of think about these issues. Um, I think it, it will mean more and more companies will and directors will start to think, should they at least be taking the minimum steps to make it harder for them to be held personally responsible? Um, but I also think it's uh, we're just going to see more and more of this. I think over time, you're going to see more and more attempts by activist groups and actually others, maybe institutional investors as well, on bringing legal actions against directors in the worst polluting companies. Uh, that are failing to really align with uh, global standards on tackling this. Now, of course, Shell says uh, it has a plan to halve emissions from its global operations by 2030, which is industry leading, and that its strategy to be net zero uh, emissions business by 2050 is also globally leading. But the big argument here is whether they should just look at the emissions from their own operations or also whether they should be doing something to cut the carbon associated with the burning of their oil and gas uh, by customers as well. So that's where the kind of um, argument will be. But I think it's exciting because, um, you know, as I said, I think it will shift the whole kind of debate. And I I think there's every chance they might have some success. You and I will know, Cara, that our uh, former friends in our our friends and former colleagues and friends of the Netherlands were very successful with a court action they brought against Shell in Dutch courts last year. Um, which is sort of forcing Shell to up their game as well. So I just think this is going to become the new normal for the most polluting companies is they're going to see activist groups 
constantly taking them on in the courts. Yeah, this is kind of groundbreaking because it's the first time where the executives have been held legally accountable rather than the company as a whole. And am I right that the only reason that's possible is because Client Earth is a shareholder in Shell? Yeah, that's right. So under UK company law, the duties uh, on directors, the legal duties are owed to shareholders. Uh, and uh, in doing so, and you know, NGOs had a big uh, campaign about this, but, and I was involved in it 20 years ago when company law was being changed in the UK. They do have to have regard to society and communities and so on, but ultimately those duties are owned, owed to directors, uh, to shareholders, and therefore it's shareholders that have to bring these actions. But of course, you don't have to buy many shares to become a shareholder. I mean, it's a funny old thought, Carla. I have a handful of shares in Shell from when I was doing activist uh, actions uh. at annual general meetings 20 years ago. Uh, and I've still got a few. I don't know what to do with them. It cost me more to get rid of them than to um, than, than, than actually their worth. Um, but this is a classic tactic, activist tactic, to buy a handful of shares in these companies, uh, just enough to then to be able to bring these kind of legal actions or to get into the annual general meetings and make a bit of a noise at, at the very least. And that's what we're seeing here. But I think client Earth's action here takes it to the next level. Yeah, I, I was looking at Shell's commitments uh, to reduce emissions, and they're very focused on the idea of the carbon intensity of their products, but not actually the absolute emissions. And they're arguing that that they don't feel they need to be held responsible for the emissions of the, of the actual products, particularly while governments are doing little to regulate consumer demand. So it's interesting they're kind of passing the buck back to governments there in their arguments. Yeah, and I don't think that washes really for me. I mean, particularly as you see that kind of retailers in particular have, I think, accepted the responsibility to help their customers reduce their social environmental footprints. You have big companies like Unilever, which, of course, makes washing powder and lots of other household products. Um, They have really bold commitments about trying to cut these what are called technically scope three emissions. In other words, the emissions associated with the use of their products by customers. So I think plenty of the corporate, plenty of companies have now accepted that they have responsibility to try and help customers cut their emissions. And I, I think Shell's going to find it hard to wriggle out of this one, at least in the court of public opinion. Whether they manage to wriggle out of it in the court of law is another matter. Yeah, well, assuming you're not a director of Shell, this could be considered a good news story. And I'm looking forward to hearing the outcome of that case. So thanks for the rundown on the Planet's Weekly Big News, Craig. Thanks, Carla. Speak next week. Absolutely. After the break, we'll find out if gas has a place in our low carbon transition. Down to Earth on News Talk with Amundi, an asset manager working today for all our tomorrows. Ireland is an extraordinary resource, almost a billion square kilometres, where it potentially could develop significant uh, areas of offshore floating wind. And, and these have the capacity to actually provide not just energy for Ireland. So the issue with regards to the other existential threat is the actual penalty of, of climate breakdown and biodiversity loss. So we have to go there anyways. And in the short term, there may well be need to realign in terms of where our energy comes from. But in the medium to long term, the offshore renewable energy is critical to zero carbon by 2050. You're listening to Down to Earth on News Talk, and that was retired Vice Admiral Mark Mellett speaking to Pat Kenny recently about the potential of Ireland's offshore wind. We'll be speaking to Vice Admiral Mellett in a few moments about the war in Ukraine and associated energy issues for us. But we've heard a lot about energy and specifically gas in the news recently as the Ukraine crisis makes us question exactly where our fossil fuels come from and and how they may be financing the Russian invasion. So here to discuss these issues, I'm joined by Tara Conley of Global Witness based in Brussels. 
and Dr. Paul Dean of Mare Research Centre for Energy, Climate and Marine Research based at University College Cork. Welcome, Tara and Paul. Guys, guys, both of you have advocated for a move away from fossil fuels towards renewables in your respective careers in an effort really to address climate change. But but now getting off gas or hydrocarbons in general, I think, has taken on another dimension in recent weeks due to the conflict in Ukraine. And I'm wondering if that's changed your own perspectives or the nature of your work. So, Tara, can we start with changes that you're seeing at an EU level in Brussels? Sure. Um, I think that there's a very big focus on where Europe gets its energy energy, something that we haven't seen in in a long time since the last time Russia invaded Ukraine in uh, 2014. Um, I think uh, the idea of gas as a transition fuel is is more or less dead. Um, That's what what many believe. And I think the idea um, really is that um, we need to accelerate the move away from gas even faster than, than we had understood it before also now for geopolitical and security reasons, as well as for for climate and and air quality reasons. Paul, would you agree with Tara's statement that gas as a transition fuel is dead or have your have your issue, your views on energy issues changed at all in light of the conflict? Yeah, look, uh, um, uh, Ireland is unusual. We're one of the most fossil fuel dependent countries right across Europe. And actually, oil is our major source, yes, but natural gas is is our secondary fuel. And completely agree with Tara. We need to move away from fossil fuels as quickly as possible. And, you know, and that cannot compromise our our, our climate targets. Um, We really need to understand what we need to do to reach those climate targets. And thankfully, Ireland has got really ambitious climate targets, probably one of the most ambitious in the world. But we we do need to look at delivery on those climate targets. And when we look at those climate targets plan, we look at the increase in renewables across the power sector, which is really important. We look at energy efficiency across the residential sector. And what that tells us that the amount of gas that we will need in the future will thankfully be a lot less, Uh, but it won't be zero. If we look at 2030, it's probably about half of the gas that we will need compared to today. And I think the challenge for us all in Ireland now is to understand, well, how can we achieve our climate ambition targets, but also where will that gas come from and what do we need to do in terms of thinking about how to use that gas? We, we don't really get our gas directly from Russia here in Ireland, but do you see ways in which Ireland could be doing more to, to help stop the fossil fuel revenues going to Russia? Well, the biggest thing that Ireland can do and all countries can do right across Europe is deliver on our climate goals. That is the best way to achieve uh, energy security, it is the best way to reduce our reliance on fossil fuels. And it's our best strength. You know, in Ireland, we don't produce any significant amount of hydrocarbons. And even right across Europe, our greatest strength is our ability to move to renewables. Our greatest strength is to reduce energy, not only at a national level, but as a consumer. So we really need to look at those elements. And those things are really powerful. They're things we can do right away. But I suppose what I would call is that they do take time. For example, Cara, we have about 700,000 homes that use natural gas in Ireland here at the moment. Last year, we had about 4,000 homes that moved away from fossil fuels. We have a real shortage of plumbers, electricians, and carpenters and tradespeople of men and women right across Ireland who can do these skills. Uh, The government have a plan to put 75,000 apprenticeships in place by 2025, but even at that level, it's still too slow. So moving away from these things is important. It's what we need to do, but it takes time and we need to plan what we're going to do in that in, in, in that period. Tara, Paul's talking about the time it takes to do this. Do you see um, a momentum in Europe that this that things might change faster than originally planned? Yes, I think that there's already plans underway for how we're going to, um, you know, weather the next winter. So there's already emergency planning happening. Um, I mean, that understandably is, is, is as a short-term plan, is very much focused on also securing supplies because we are reliant on gas. Paul is right. Right now, right now Europe is reliant on a lot of uh, fossil fuel imports. 
Um, but in the longer term, I think there is definitely um, a renewed focus on trying to understand exactly these blockages um, that, that Paul mentioned. I think um, absolutely uh, having the right workforce and skill set in place is essential across all of Europe. I think that's, that's problems that Paul mentioned are, are Europe-wide. Um, I think there's also issues around, um, you know, permitting for renewables, while obviously still respecting um, the, the um, uh, biodiversity concerns. Um, and there are um, other, you know, finance is another big question. I think there's a lot of money out there. We, we're still subsidizing, you know, fossil fuels to the hilt. We really need to look at those money flows and start redirecting them in, in into, you know, tackling the kind of, um, you know, blockages that we're that we're discussing here today. Yeah, I, I, in Ireland now, a lot of the recent commentary we're seeing on this energy crisis has focused on measures which would continue our dependence on fossil fuels. So things like building a dedicated import facility for liquefied natural gas or looking at the option of opening up offshore exploration for oil and gas again, or even some politicians have suggested revisiting bans on peat extraction or the ban on nuclear power. Is this something you're seeing in Europe where where this issue is, is actually driving a renewed interest in, in more fossil fuels? fuel exploration and, and production. Yes, it has to be said that there are also conversations happening about investments in LNG terminals um, and opening up potentially, um, you know, oil and gas exploration in, in places where the, the, the door definitely been shut. What I would say is that is happening in countries where there's much higher reliance on, on, on imports from, from Russia, particularly around gas. So a lot of the LNG discussion is in Germany. Um, I think that what's really important for everyone to understand is the timeline in this. So, um, you know, there's a lot, actually the things that can deliver quickly are things like energy savings, um, also behavior, you know, behavior campaigns. Um, and, and a lot of the investments that people are discussing around LNG terminals are very long-term investments. Not only do they take a long time to come on, on stream, uh, they're also going to be there for a very long time. Um, I'd also like to, you know, knock on the head the idea that we can, you know, turn LNG terminals into hydrogen terminals, that's that's technically an impossibility. So we also have to think longer term about what we're going to do with these assets. We can't just, you know, say that we're going to use them for a few years and then drop them. That's not, in our experience, what happens at all. So we really need to make sure that in the long term, what we're doing is aligned also with you know, as Paul said, our climate goals, that is really the best way for us to to achieve energy security and um, uh, tackle the climate crisis. Paul, do you see any of those measures actually coming to fruition in Ireland because of the current crisis? Yeah, you know, let me be honest here, Carly. If you asked me this question a year ago, I would have said no way because, you know, it's what's really important for Ireland from a physical uh, uh, supply of gas is really the, the the infrastructure coming in from the UK. You know what happens in terms of Russia will impact us in terms of price. You know and we're exposed to that like all European countries. But I suppose in the last two to three weeks the world has changed, and I'm really worried. I suppose now about the 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 exposure that we have in Ireland to the infrastructure coming from the UK. And in many ways, it's kind of hoping for the best, but planning for the worst. Um, the kind of things that are on the back of my mind is what if there's cyber attacks in, in the UK. Or if there's a severe gas rationing right across uh, right across uh, the UK, that would impact us here in Ireland. Now, you, you know, we're, we're, there's a lot of crystal ball gazing here. You know, we're looking into a nebulous cloud of uncertainty into the future. But I do think we need to pre be prepared for worst case scenarios in Ireland around our gas security and the kind of things that we need to look at now. And I would have never never have dreamed I would have said this uh, a year or two ago is looking at things like opening up uh, offshore exploration for natural gas, uh, particularly around the Carib areas. I think Tara, uh, Tara makes a really good point. The timelines here are really important. We're looking for things that to get us through the next 10 years, not through the next 30 years. So 
what the Irish government needs to be doing is looking at solutions that can increase and enhance our security of supply, particularly looking at the exposure coming in from the UK, but things are aligned with our climate targets. And the kind of things that we should be looking at looking at are things like floating offshore LNG uh, rather than onshore LNG. And the idea is here is you want something that's quick and short term. You don't want to be locked into uh, uh, fossil fuel uh, reliability. And the same thing with onshore extract, with, with nearshore extraction, maybe around the Corrib. If there's gas out there near the Corrib, and there's a huge question mark whether there is and whether there isn't, and depending on who you talk to, you get many different views. But if gas was found near the Corrib, uh, similar size and feel to the Corrib, that would help us out over the next 10 years without locking us in. To, uh, to any kind of long-term infrastructure. So these are very difficult decisions. What makes them all very hard is that they're all uncertain. They all have big problems associated with them. The idea around floating offshore LNG sounds conceptually very simple, but actually it could end up being very expensive. And then as Tara says, where do you get that LNG? There's a cost to be considered there, but I think at the time now is, is correct for the Irish government to number one, double down on our renewables and energy efficiency targets, but also we need to understand carefully that while we move away from fossil fuels, where will we get those fossils? Where will we get that natural gas in particular over the next 10 years? And I think we need to understand uh, what the options are available to us and, and, and choose the best one. Well, my thanks to Tara Conley and Paul Dean for their expertise in our energy issues. Just a reminder that in a few minutes, we'll be talking to Dr. David Conley about his green life. But first, I'm honored to be joined by retired Vice Admiral Mark Mellet. Hi, Mark. Cara, how are you? Good to talk to you again. Great to hear from you, Mark. Your appearance as a guest here on Down to Earth last year got quite a reaction because I think no one expected a military man to be so knowledgeable about ecology and renewable energy. But it seems like all those issues have tragically converged following the invasion of the Ukraine. Would you would you feel that that's true? I think so, yeah. I think it's really brought it home to us um, that our dependency on um, hydrocarbon fuels has left us in a very vulnerable position in terms of the EU. And uh, we need to, um, I suppose, have common, common cause in weaning ourselves of hydrocarbons. 40% of our LNG comes from Russia, 30% of our uh, crude oil comes from Russia. And we have a huge opportunity in terms of Ireland, in terms of the offshore renewable energy, to actually be able to power ourselves, not just in terms of five gigawatts the government has promised, but over 30 gigawatts of offshore renewable energy after the 2030 and with interconnectors to Europe, we could become a power source for the uh, union. You mentioned 40 percent of our, our gas. That's at the EU level. And uh, is that right? And 30 percent of our oil? In terms of the 27, yeah, 40 percent of the 27, it comes from Russia. Yeah. And so even though here in Ireland, we don't directly import any Russian gas, we do directly import a bit of uh, oil, I think around 4% of our oil comes from Russia. So is there an obligation on our part to, to maybe follow the US lead and, and stop letting these Russian oil tankers in? No, I, I think we, the, this is a time for multilateralism and staying within the institutions. Uh, we are part of the European Union. And I think uh, we're much stronger if we are in lockstep in the context of any measures taken. And I think that's the approach from government. Um, the strength of the European Union is the collegiality and the unity of effort. It has given us 75 years of relative peace, notwithstanding the Balkan Wars, and we should continue forward with that uh, unity of effort in terms of staying within the institutions. Do you think maybe we should start rationing now in preparation for next winter or even in preparation for a potential security breach in our in our gas supplies from the UK? I, I think it's a... 
probably too early to say that. I, I really think that there are um, difficult decisions ahead for the European Union, and uh, we should uh, ensure that we bring our advice to bear on that. We need to accelerate our programme in terms of the offshore renewable opportunity. There is great leadership in there under Martin Fanukin, the likes of Conor McCabe, Martina Hennessy, really pushing forward with the Marine Area Regulatory Authority. And I know additional uh, resources going into it on board Panala to really ramp up and get initially the fixed wind uh, offshore capacity up and going, followed by offshore floating in phase two, and then ultimately moving with other vectors such as green hydrogen and ultimately wave energy and increased solar. Yeah, we did a, a a piece about offshore wind recently, and I was kind of surprised how far away offshore wind still is because of, understandably, the planning process and the things we need to do before we can actually construct these these offshore wind turbines. So, how should we be expediting this process? I I, I, I understand you know the developers are jittery. I think uh, I just attended a conference yesterday with the Belgian embassy, and they're a little bit concerned. But I, I am absolutely convinced of the commitment from government and the leadership of the likes of uh, Martin Fanukin. Uh, Minister McGrath has really taken this uh, by the scruff of the neck. I know the Taoiseach has spoken about it uh, with Macron in Paris. It really is on the top of the agenda. And I think great leadership from Minister Eamon Ryan in the context of setting these targets of five gigawatts and greater than 30 gigawatts after that. So we need to have some patience. Uh, you know, Rome was not built in a day. Uh, but what I've seen in companies like Simply Blue or uh, service providers like Green Rebel, um, companies like DP Energy, they're all basically on message and uh, the plan is coming together. So a small bit of strategic patience, but we will wean ourselves off hydrocarbons. We will become um, completely self-sufficient in terms of offshore renewable energy. And we will become a resource that can feed into that strategic autonomy that Europe needs so it can be strong. What do you think the timescale is for when we finally start to see offshore wind at scale here in Ireland? I think by 2030, uh, 2031, we will see massive developments there. I mean, these constructions are as big as um, the Eiffel Tower. Extraordinary requirements in terms of handling, in terms of anchoring. Um, and it will require, a, I suppose, a discussion with different sectors and civil society and NGO community. It will require discussion with fishers in terms of traditional indigenous fishing rights. And it also requires an understanding that uh, things have to change. We are on a, on a really, really dangerous trajectory with regards to the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. And not just in the atmosphere, it's in the ocean. And my own study area in terms of deep water corals are really under threat because of ocean acidification. Uh, fish stocks are under threat because of ocean acidification. The only way we can get forward is to wean ourselves off hydrocarbon, bring in the uh, offshore renewable energy capacity, but at the same time look for net biological gain in terms of how we stimulate uh, bio biodiversity recovery. Biodiversity is just as critical as renewable energy. And that can go hand in glove with regards to the development of marine protected areas where we stimulate offshore reefs. We have offshore seaweed, offshore kelp. It's, it's an extraordinary opportunity. Yeah, there are a lot of people who are concerned about the environmental impact of all of these proposed offshore wind developments and, and have suggested that really we should be establishing the marine protected areas first and, and we should we should take that consultation forward before we start uh, giving planning permission to these offshore wind developments. What do you have to say to that? We do not have time for perfection. 
and I know everybody has a desire for perfection, but perfection is the enemy of the good. And I think that the current phase one, phase two, has taken into account a lot of the concerns. There will be environmental impact assessments. And as we move towards a planned-led approach, we will get better and we will move towards that perfection that everybody desires. But what is at the other end of this is that existential threat to survival in the context of the rate of increase of carbon going into the atmosphere, into our systems, the damage to ecosystems. So this is um, you know, a difficult uh, thing to manage, but it requires, I suppose, the actual push and pull of the various social systems, government and policy, uh, civil society and NGO community, and the industry and enterprise coming together to a point of truth that makes those decisions, that expedites that enabler in terms of renewable energy so that we can actually wean ourselves off the hydrocarbon, we can stimulate the biodiversity regeneration, and we actually can have what in effect is a green industrial revolution that will we'll actually see a, a sea change in the context of how we deliver energy. It's a great opportunity in terms of employment. If I was a youngster now, I would be absolutely looking at this area in terms of my, my future. The 30 gigawatts will be equivalent to over 350 Ardna crushes. And we all know how important Ardna Crusha was to the stimulation of our economy back in the late 20s, early 30s. This is the next step on that in terms of a new change in terms of how we do business in Ireland. Earlier, we were speaking to Paul Dean of Mare and Tara Conley of Global Witness about how a lot of the recent commentary that we've seen on the energy crisis in Ireland has has focused on measures which would actually continue our dependence on fossil fuels. So things like a, a dedicated LNG facility or reopening the idea of offshore exploration for oil and gas or even revisiting peat extraction or the ban on nuclear power. Do you think we should be considering any of those options in light of new developments? There's a convergence required. And I, I would say and my focus is primarily on the offshore renewable energy opportunity. There are absolutely requirements for a dependency on LNG and other vectors in the short term. But we really should look at the goal here. And the goal is basically to prime, to drive, to develop the offshore renewable energy sector and to do so in lockstep with civil society and geo community, with fishers and also with good policy coming from government. So is that a no on some of those other technologies or is that a, a possibly? It's a maybe. <laughs> it's a maybe. I think a lot of us feel that 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 this whole situation is out of control and there's nothing we can do to help. And, and it gets harder for us to help as our cost of living increases because of energy costs and, and increasing food costs. So it's not unlike how a lot of people might feel about the climate and biodiversity crisis. What do you think that the ordinary citizen can do right now in these kind of unprecedented times to help with this crisis? Well, I, I always remember, you know, this this famous line, somebody needs to do something. Actually, the government is doing a huge amount and it is invested in Mara. It is invested in, in on board Panada. It's developing the policy that is there. Likewise, the developers are doing the same in terms of looking at the opportunity and getting their plans in place for this remarkable, um, I, I suppose, change that will happen to Ireland. And we as individuals have our own responsibility and we have to look at our own carbon footprint in terms of how we go about our own business. And I, I think we see it now in the, in the petrol and gas stations in terms of diesel prices. We really have to look at ways in which we can actually become more environmentally friendly, how we travel. And I know that's I, I get a lot of criticism about this because perhaps our public transport network isn't what it, it could be. But there are, I think, decisions we have to make in the context of reducing our own personal carbon footprint. There is no do nothing option. And I always think about Nelson Mandela. He said, 
it always seems impossible until it's done. This will be done, and it will be done, I think, with everybody having a common interest in terms of delivering a future that is net carbon zero, that is actually environmentally friendly and leaves us in a position that we hand on the custody we have of this planet to our, our children in, in good state. Finally, Mark, you've just come back from Poland. So did your perspective on the crisis change from that visit? It did. Um, I, I was there with friends and it, it was quite poignant to, to see the solidarity between the Polish and the Ukrainians. Everywhere I went, I saw the green and uh, sorry, I saw the the blue and yellow of the Ukrainian flag. Uh, gatherings at, at, at squares. In fact, I went to the the, um, the Citadella Park where I saw thousands of war graves from the Second and First World War. And those graves were of Russian soldiers, of British soldiers, of Polish soldiers. And I looked at the ages on them. There was 27, 21, 25. And I couldn't but help think that um, less than a thousand kilometers to the east, there was a war where soldiers were being killed. But, uh, and citizens were being killed. War crimes were happening, crimes against humanity and, and possibly the most grievous of all crimes, the crime of genocide. Today is National Flag Day and as a, an honorary member of the board of the Thomas Francis Marr Foundation, I think it's great that all throughout our schools today, there is a reflection on our national flag and what it means to be sovereign, what it means to have a civil society where people are free, where the institutions of state function, and where the vulnerable are protected. And I want to commend the Thomas Maher Foundation for sponsoring this through our secondary schools today. That's a great reminder. My thanks to Vice Admiral Mark Mellet for his perspective on our energy supply and, of course, the crisis in Ukraine. Up next, Dr. David Conley will be telling me about his green life. Down to Earth on News Talk with Amundi, an asset manager working today for all our tomorrows. Each week here on Down to Earth, we dig into someone's green life, finding out how they integrate environmental issues into their everyday lives. And today, the man crowned Person of the Year at last week's Wind Energy Ireland Awards joins us. Dr. David Conley. Congratulations, David. Uh, thanks very much, Carrie. Yeah, it was well, an honour. Well deserved, of course, but I have to say I was a little bit surprised that Wind Energy Ireland gave you this award, named you Person of the Year, because you actually left them about a year <laughs> ago and moved to the heat sector, yet they still seem to love you and don't resent that at all. Tell me more about that move between from wind to heat. Yeah, and quite a few members pointed that out after I got the award that I uh, betrayed the industry and still got awarded for it. So uh, yeah, no, you're not the first to mention that. But no, look, the, the move, I suppose, was based on on two things, I suppose. One, I suppose the wind energy sector is full of fantastic people and Ireland is just world leading it. So I had kind of reached a point where, like, you know, without sounding too condescending about it, I just felt I could add more value in the heat sector. And the reason I felt that was I had got a fantastic education in Scandinavia in renewable heat and I could just see so many opportunities that Ireland wasn't taking advantage of in the heat sector Whereas in the wind sector, we are just were leading. So I just could see all of these things we weren't doing on the heat side that I felt if I was working in that space, I could be really adding new ideas to. Whereas in the wind space, I was just part of a a journey that so many fantastic people are already on. And I think that's kind of underpinned if you look at the stats. If you just look at the numbers, and as an engineer, I suppose, I always go back to numbers. There are five countries in Europe that have renewable heat share over 50%. And we're at six so, like, we are just, we're bottom of the pile, we're last on the list, we're, we're the very bottom in Europe in terms of renewable heat share. And I suppose having lived in, you know, Scandinavia, like, like Sweden is at 66% renewable heat and we're at six. So we've 10 times less than what they have. 
And having lived over in Denmark and done a lot of trips to Sweden and Finland and, and other countries in that area that are doing so well, there's just so many opportunities to do things that are proven, not that we have to wait for or figure out or have been done for decades that we just weren't taking advantage of. And that's really was the driver to go, you know what, the wind world is just on an upward trajectory. There's so many great things happening. The heat world, it's not just in a poor place, it's actually declining, would you believe? You know, at a time where climate is so critical, we're actually getting our, our renewable heat shares going down the last couple of years. So I just felt that was a space. So when I left Wind Energy Ireland, it was a big part of my, I had kind of known before I left that this was going to be a career pivot for me. I, I took a bit of time out and I kind of spent the time out looking for where should I sit into the renewable heat space. And Astatine came along towards the uh, end of last year where we're now doing industrial heat pumps. And that's one piece of the renewable heat space that I think has huge so you're a man who likes the challenge, but explain this whole idea of heat sector. I find it a bit confusing because we have the electricity sector, we have the kind of overall energy sector. I would presume heat would fit under those, but now it's become this kind of separate thing. So the you, you, the, the renewable heat space and the heat sector in general is an incredibly confusing space. And I think the reason it is, is because there's so little data available on the heat sector. Like if you go to electricity, you can get data down to the one minute grade nearly. You can find out what's happening on the electricity grid second by second almost if you need it. But if you asked the energy sector in Ireland, what's the heat demand in Ireland? Most people wouldn't even know in the energy sector, never mind day-to-day life, you know, because that number is not widely documented or, or collected. So I'll, get, I'll try in 60 seconds to explain so, a, an incredibly complicated area in high-level numbers, they're not fully correct, but will give you maybe a sense of what the heat sector is all about. So, so the first thing is the total heat we need in Ireland is 45 terawatt hours. That's what we need, all of the heat across all of our sectors. About a third of that is for industry and about two-thirds of that is for buildings. And that's a really important distinction to start with because industry needs very different heat to what our buildings need. So if we just take then the industry, so that third, it's about 15, 17 terawatt hours, what, what industry needs is typically very high temperatures. So everything up to thousands of degrees Celsius industry needs. It goes from maybe 30 degrees Celsius all the way up to a thousand, so a very, over a thousand. So a huge variation in what, what different factories around Ireland need. And, and that's really important because the temperature which heat is needed at is incredibly strongly linked to the decarbonisation solutions available to solve it. And again, without getting into too many details, the one magic number I would say people should keep in mind is the 200 degrees Celsius number. That's that's probably the most pivotal one for the industrial sector. So if I told you a third of all our heat is industry, about half of the industry is less than 200 degrees Celsius and about half of industry is above 200 degrees Celsius. And the reason that's so important is below 200 degrees Celsius, you're probably looking at heat pumps, large industrial heat pumps. That's the business Astatine is in. We're tackling that proven, a lot of proven technology within that space, rolled out in a lot of other EU countries for, for decades. Above 200 degrees Celsius, you're probably looking at fuel, like a hydrogen or a biofuel. Now, there, there will be some electrification, but not as mainstream. So, so look, if you took that, took that strand first, you have 45 terawatt hours, a third in industry, about half of industry below 200 degrees C, electrification with heat pumps, and then the other half is likely to be some kind of clean fuel. And then if you go back to where we started, if 45 terawatt hours, if a third is industry, the other two thirds is buildings. And the most important thing in the buildings world is location. So about half of our buildings are in cities, urban areas, and about half are in rural. And the reason that's so important is in cities, we're looking at networks. 
Whereas in the rural areas, we're looking at individual heat solution within the buildings. So if you take buildings have 30 terawatt hours, it's probably a little bit less, but just for, for round numbers, about half of that should be solved with district heating. So heat networks within cities, and the other half is individual heat So pumps. you're including houses, residential? Everything. So yeah, all, all buildings. So whether Because it's actually, funny enough, it's not that different. Like, the only really fundamental thing that's different between, let's say, an apartment block and an office building is the time of use. You know, where the, the building, the office block is used during the day predominantly, the apartment is used in the morning and evenings predominantly. But as, a, as an engineer solving the problem, the technology to solve both of those, it's a building that needs about 80 degrees Celsius heat. So that, that's why from an engineering point of view, buildings are kind of the same in, in many ways. But if it, like hopefully that gives a people a flavour of what does the heat sector look like? And by fragmenting it between those critical segments will lead you to very clear decarbonisation solutions. But I mean, retrofitting district heating into our existing building network seems impossible to No, it's, it's, it's actually much more straightforward than people think. So like, I think what people kind of get lost in a bit is they think the pipes are incredibly expensive. And they're actually surprisingly not. They're incredibly visible. So people, when they see a network going in, they see the pipes in the street is an incredibly visible aspect of that. But if you look at the actual cost of the piping versus the cost of every individual gas boiler in every individual building and every radiator system in every individual building, actually district heating pipes over the lifetime of the infrastructure are actually not that expensive compared to adding up the individual pieces that everyone's spending in their home. So are we on the wrong track, the way we're promoting all these individual heat pump installations into our houses? So I think for new builds, heat pumps makes perfect sense because they're so well insulated. But in an urban setting, a centralised heating system will likely be a much lower cost way to de- decarbonise. And in, an, in a rural setting, heat pumps are absolutely the, the choice to So to is, has the government been wrong in terms of their policy that it's all about heat pumps and that we're not looking at district heating really at all? In so, so we had... A seminal moment in government policy two weeks ago and I couldn't believe how under the radar it went with the launch of SAI's National Heat Study. So the the National Heat Study that SAI launched was an absolutely fundamental shift in government perspective on how to tackle the heat sector and I would say the first time in my entire career that I think Irish heat policy is pointing absolutely in the right direction. So that, that, that I can't put into words, like for somebody who's worked in this sector for probably 15 years, where I, when I started out, how far I thought we were a bit off course. And look, as I said, the numbers show that. We're not the lowest in Europe because we were on course. And I think what has happened there two weeks ago, I'd advise anyone who's interested in the heat sector, it's a fantastic study, incredibly detailed. It's SEI's National Heat Study. And everything I kind of reamed off there is very closely aligned with what that study is saying. So like, that's why for me it's been an incredibly exciting two weeks since I've seen that. So I think we're seeing, we're, we're probably going to see the fruits of that in the coming years. Now that there's the scientific evidence base coming out of SAI, which then advises government policy, I would hope in the coming six to 12 months we're going to see the knock-on impacts of that with policy now aligning exactly in the direction it needs to go in. And as we, as you've pointed out, Cara, there's things like that in it, that urban areas need to prioritise district heating systems and, you know, potentially create district heating zones where people can see you get grants for district heating in those urban areas, you get grants for heat pumps outside of those urban areas. So I, I think we're in a... I, th- I think we, we, we've seen the big moment. The big moment is the, the ship has moved and is now pointing in the right and direction. And now it's about implementation, Absolutely. Really. And the good news on implementation is others have already done it, so we yeah. just have to copy.
Good to hear. I want to go back briefly to your role as CEO of Wind Energy Ireland because you took on that role around 2018 when when onshore wind was a bit of a political hot potato and politicians were quite fearful of of anti-wind protests that yeah. were happening around 2014, 2015. So do you feel that the wind sector has finally weathered that storm, so to speak, and, and moved on from, from that? Uh, absolutely. I, I can't. Again, it's been a fund, like a huge change in a short period of time. Like I, like, I actually started in Wind Energy Ireland as head of policy in 2017 so I started to feel the kind of the, the aura of what was going on around the wind industry from there I suppose and at that time I felt there was a huge disconnect between a wind turbine and climate change you know people couldn't generally there was whether it's at a political level or just in day-to-day life you know just talking to people there was kind of the, the, the climate story was starting to bubble up where people were starting to think god climate change is really important we have to do something about it but there wasn't a natural connection to well actually a wind farm which is saving the most carbon emissions in Ireland to date. Like that is the only technology we've really succeeded at deploying at scale to tackle climate change. There was a kind of missing link between the two. But I think the, the you know Greta Thunberg and, and the kids on the streets just brought the climate change discussion right into everyone's kitchen table. And we felt that in Wind Energy Ireland in terms of people were starting to see, oh God, this is what is actually fixing it? And then all of a sudden that started to build the connection between God, wind farms are actually what's solving it and working for us. So that, that just created a huge momentum swing in terms of like maybe the word is appreciation for why we were doing it. You know, people almost thought for a long time, I think we were just building these things. To be frank, they thought it was just a business play or something. There was, there was no purpose other than earning some money from them or something. And that, that was absolutely never the case. The, the, the point of building wind farms was to avoid carbon emissions. That's why it was taken on in, in the first place. And to be frank, the Danes started it for energy security reasons, you know, mm-hmm. which is what we're all feeling right now uh, as we speak. So... Massive changes, and I think that that the wind industry, when I finished up last year, and even now, as I watch them, kind of from the outside, it is absolutely in a fantastic place. They they are they are going to deliver probably the greatest chunk of carbon emission savings over the next decade as well. So it's it's critical to to and, and even in our world in Astatine, where we develop industrial heat pumps, we rely on clean electricity to deliver clean heat. So so we're we're developing this technology using electricity under the assumption that we'll have clean electricity in Ireland. So yeah. hopefully we'll get to that 80% renewable electricity target by 2030, and that makes our renewable heat even cleaner. So, uh, yeah. yeah, a great journey to be part of. You mentioned the Danes, and, and you actually spent about six years living in Denmark as a professor mm. in Alberg University uh, based out of Copenhagen. So given everything I've heard about Denmark and how modern and sustainable it is, I'm actually surprised you even came back to Ireland. Is it really as amazing as they say? Yeah, so anyone who knows me is laughing right now when you ask that question. So the, the short answer is yes, it is. It was a fantastic place to live and I, I miss it dearly. And I actually rarely go back because when I go back, I get tempted to stay. So uh, <laughs> I, I'm actually going back in two weeks for only the second time since I left, would you believe? So uh, no, it is. It's, it's a fantastic place to live. And they do deserve, like people often roll their eyes, even when you're in, I did a lot of work in Brussels during my time in Denmark and, you know, a lot of countries around the table would roll their eyes when another Danish or Swedish kind of, you know, best in case example would come up but they do deserve it they, they, they're they're very um, they're very good at long term planning you know not planning for the emergency of tomorrow but thinking what will this mean over the next 20 years and I suppose that kind of mindset has led them to doing a lot of sensible things you know and even right now in this crisis you know, if you take some of the countries, like especially the likes of Sweden, they're probably looking around going, what is all this gas price fuss about? Because they, they've, as I said, they have 66% renewable heat. They mm-hmm. 
they've probably, I, I don't know the exact number, but I'm sure it's in the high percentages of renewable electricity. I, I just don't know it offhand. But like that, that long-term thinking has meant they avoid the catastrophes we now have to deal with of spikes in fuel prices, shortages in supply. So because they do that across all sectors, not just energy, that's the kind of mindset they kind of approach problems with. It just is a very enjoyable place to live with a very kind of stable as you go, kind of li- life that you, you you look out. So I, I loved it. Yeah, I loved it. And, and it is as good. Was as it hard to come back to Ireland? Very. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, it was. And and the guys in Wind Energy Ireland, because that was the first place I worked when I moved back. With they till this day give me a lot of uh, trouble over the amount of times I talked about all the things I missed. So uh, no, it was it was tough. But look on the upside, you get back to family. It was nice to be back. Let's say in normal life again, in the sense that you could talk about normal day-to-day things like GAA and hurling and all these things that you had to explain all the time over there. So miss it dearly, but no, very much glad to be back. And to be honest, it was a huge motivating factor was to come home, was to bring everything I learned. You know, like I I wrote Green Plan Ireland while living in Denmark, kind of with the headspace of I'm kind of here undercover to learn as much as I can and bring it home because I always thought that's probably where I'd, I'd finish up. So it was very enjoyable to be back and feel like you're bringing a new perspective after all the things I'd learned out What's there. one thing about your everyday life in Denmark that you would love to bring to Ireland? So I, ironically, it's two I could probably mention quickly is biking. Uh, I miss. I, I still bike, but my wife stopped completely once we moved home because she was just too dangerous. And I, I miss that because she she never we never bought a car for the six years we lived out there. We used, the, the, the trains even have bike carriages. So even if we had to go a long distance, you just bring the bike into the city, get on the train and go a long distance. And I suppose even though I still bike and it is very dangerous and it is like I, we no longer bike together and even now with our kids we don't really bring them on the bike because it's just you get a bit and look there's great progress being made there in bike lanes but I miss that that just as a kind of lifestyle you'd, you'd, you'd miss that and then the other is uh, my wife Ree, and myself when we moved back we really missed the constantly on hot water that we always had. <laughs> Just in terms of your daily life. So I miss fir- that about America too. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, you just go to the tap and you turn it on and you get hot water straight away. And ironically, that was, even though my wife was very bored a lot of the time listening to me going on about district heating out there, <laughs> she started to appreciate why I was so wrapped up in it when we came back. So actually one of the things we did when we came back was put in a, a heat pump in the apartment, which was an unusual thing to do. And we now have hot water again. But just, again, small things, but day to day it actually resonated with us when we came back that that we that, that, that we actually missed that when yeah. we came home. Finally, you actually grew up on a farm in mm. Mayo. So I'm curious, has that shaped your views on environmental issues? You know, the the, the funniest thing, you know, I, I, it's probably one of the few questions I sometimes get asked that I might get a little bit emotional thinking about because it kind of goes straight to your core. The one thing that resonated with me a lot when I moved out to, to Denmark, I went on a lot of site visits around the country, especially Vestas and uh, Danfoss and uh, Velux and these big energy companies when I went to some of the most rural areas that reminded me of home the thing that kind of resonated with me most was when I grew up in Mayo our town was in decline like it was people leaving it was me leaving like I, I always kind of envisaged that growing up in Mayo I would leave and that that would be just kind of part of my journey but then when I went over to these rural areas and I saw huge factories building wind turbine blades and thousands of people employed in these tiny towns that really reminded me of home. I just felt, God, we missed a trick, you know, like, and we are missing a trick. Like, of course, there's there's euros per kilowatt hour costs and there's all these things, but the, these are real stories of rural economies driven by the transition in a country that wouldn't be really considered the most cheapest place to have manufacturing plants. And I suppose growing up on the farm and 
thinking back to that time, I think the one thing that I has, has lasted me the longest is just it never felt like it was going to be around and sustainable ever. Like even before I knew the details of things, it always felt like it was something that was temporary. And I suppose I was in a beef farm, which is even probably the worst end of the spectrum. Like it's not exactly something that you could ever really imagine yourself living off for the long run. But I think that was the thing that probably resonated with me the most was, you know, how in our part, me growing up in that place was always going to be difficult to see it as a lifetime career option where seeing what places like rural, like Rinkubing, if anyone ever looks it up, Rinkubing is a county in the very rural part of Denmark where about 50% of people were now employed in renewable energy, you know, and just thinking they'd managed to pivot over to a new area. Like, and just a short narrative is just to give you how real that is. Like Vestas was an agricultural engineering company before it pivoted to build wind turbines, you know, and just seeing how, you know, maybe the land and farming and those skill sets can do something more sustainable that benefits everything rather than just sticking to the historical way of doing things that maybe won't last the distance. And I think having seen both ends of that spectrum, it really, I suppose, resonated with me having growing up in a farm how different things may be if we if we go in a different direction so not really maybe a kind of lifetime perspective on growing up in a farm rather than something I had necessarily as a teenager working on it if, yeah. you, if you know what I mean. Well it's an inspirational story I can see why Wind Energy Ireland gave you person <laughs> of the year my thanks to Dr. David Conley for a peek into his green life and for his tireless work in making Ireland greener too. Thanks for having me here.